This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Are we going to walk away from arms control or are we not? Are we going to extend the New START Treaty or not? Are we going to at some point ratify CTBT or push for testing? You know, those are the things that are going to, over the long term, really going to affect the ability of the middle to actually remain a middle. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. This episode of our Smart Women Pony Pathbreaker series examines the role of Congress in nuclear policy. I spoke with two Hill veterans, one past and one present, about this issue. We also spoke about their careers. Madeline Creeden is a part-time research professor of international affairs and chair of the Nuclear Security Working Group at George Washington University. She's also a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings. Most recently, she served as Principal Deputy Administrator of the National Nuclear Security Administration, better known as NNSA, but she also spent two decades on the staff of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Augusta Benz Berkey is currently a professional staff member on the Senate Armed Services Committee and previously served as a policy analyst at SAIC. Madeline and Augusta, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Let's talk about the role Congress plays in nuclear policy. It's often argued that Congress isn't playing a big enough role in nuclear policy. Can you both outline for our listeners Congress's actual role? Madeline, we can start with you. So Congress obviously plays a big role through the oversight uh, and the budgetary process, the authorization process and appropriations process. The Senate also can play a very large role in the context of uh, the confirmation process. And uh, to me, Armed Services plays one of the biggest roles through the annual defense authorization bill. Yeah, I think both, I agree with everything Madeline said. The NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, is the only piece of authorizing legislation that has moved through Congress consistently every year. This this will be the 60th consecutive NDAA. And that gives the Armed Services Committees a particular tool for all kinds of legislation that might not be able to make it through the whole process if it stood on its own. So while there are more than a dozen other authorizing committees. The Armed Services Committee in particular is the only one that still consistently moves legislation. So it's really just the NDAA and the authorization and the appropriations bills that consistently move. And that gives us on the authorizing side, the opportunity to take a look at real detailed level, the individual budget proposals, individual programs, um, all across the board. And that's something that I think hasn't happened as consistently um, in other, uh, in domestic policy areas or in foreign policy um, that gives us a, a strong a strong tool to be able to use in the context of oversight. Beyond oversight uh, and beyond the hearings and the, the NDAA, is there an opportunity for Congress to do more with nuclear policy? And if so, what what should it do? 
So I think there's a lot of underutilization, if you will, on the confirmation side. The so relevant to nuclear policy, there are three, there are at least three committees that play a big role. One's the energy on the Senate side, of course, one's the Energy Committee, Armed Services, and also um the Foreign Relations Committee. So each one of the, each one of these committees has people come before them for confirmation for confirmation that play a big role in uh, any administration's formulation of nuclear policy. And in this case, nuclear policy is more than just weapons. It's nuclear nonproliferation policy, it's negotiations policy, it's arms control, it's the whole envelope of things on the nuclear agenda. A lot of times when a large, you know, where there's a, a big nomination, like a secretary, for instance, you don't get as much focus and attention on the nuclear policy. I know this has been particularly true with the Secretary of Energy coming before the Energy Committee because of this split in jurisdiction between the Energy Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee. So there is a lot of untapped opportunity for Congress to assert itself more, not only at the secretarial level, but also at the underlying confirmation. In other words, really making sure that the people who are nominated for these positions have knowledge, have understanding, have experience, have some depth in the job for which they're nominated, particularly in this area, because there's nothing intuitive about nuclear policy writ large. The other thing I would say is basically hearings. And it's having hearings that, again, go beyond the normal authorization and appropriation cycle. So have policy experts, have have people come in from think tanks, have people come in from academia, have foreign military, have diplomats, have, you know, just a wide variety of other people come in and talk to the committees, give their thoughts, give their their inspirations, if you will, their insights. And that, I think, also helps the committees writ large understand all of this better. And probably the third, and I'll, I'll leave it there, is, is there's a lot of opportunity, I think, for committees to partner, um, particularly like our armed services and energy and armed services and foreign relations. Yeah, going back to something that Madeline just said, I think her second point, we, this is something that I think we've actually been working on quite a bit in the last few years. There's a, there's a, tension in the Senate in particular, I think, because senators tend to sit on five or six committees. So their time is really pulled in a lot of different directions. Um, we also, unlike other committees, spend quite a bit of our time on the actual process of drafting, marking up, passing and negotiating the NDAA. And then when you factor in the recess period, recess periods throughout the year, especially in a year like this, in an election year, it is a challenge to find the the time in the rest of the year outside of the normal posture hearing cycle, which for us begins in January before the president's budget's released and goes right up until markup, which usually falls sometime in May. Obviously, this year our schedule was quite a bit interrupted, but we have actually had a few of these kinds of hearings, in particular, actually Madeline testified at one last year, I believe it was, on arms control nuclear policy in the run-up to what we anticipated was going to be a renewed series of debates on this subject with the House, given the uh, chairman of the House Armed Services Committee's interest in nuclear policy. So I, I agree with Madeline, I think there's always room for more especially because I, I think actually those kinds of hearings serve a couple different purposes besides information gathering for the members themselves. It's also an opportunity to spotlight 
subjects or individuals for the public. And one hopes that the extra attention that is placed on an issue through a full committee hearing means that maybe there's a little more press coverage of it, or maybe there's some interested students who watch it. And that's, I think that's another use for those kinds of um, public hearings outside of the of the normal cycle. And then the other thing that I'd add is that actually one thing that we've done on the Armed Services Committee in the last three years is for the first time in quite a long time, we actually have had the Secretary of Energy testify before the full committee in support of the um, 053 budget request. So that's the about 75% of the Department of Energy annual budget that is funded through defense spending. So about half of that's NNSA. The other quarter is the nuclear waste cleanup, environmental management. And that had not been a routine part of the annual posture hearing process in, I think, over a decade, we determined the last time a Secretary of Energy had testified before the Senate Armed Services Committee was during the run-up to the JCPOA when state DOE and DOD were all testifying before all of the relevant committees. But there hadn't been this sort of normalized annual posture hearing the way we have for all kinds of officials in DOD, from the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman to each of the Secretaries of the Military Services, Chiefs of Staff, combatant commanders, all of that. So we have, I think, to, to Madeline's point, I think we have started to try and broaden that oversight function in a way that had not been, uh, had not been quite so routine for, for quite a while. Is it a question, Augusta, of the time that it takes for these top level people to prepare to come before the committee to testify? Or is it a case of, uh, of something else that keeps them from or, or keeps the engagement at the level that it's been? Well, not to be flipped, but I would hope that the Secretary of, of Energy would be routinely engaged with the subject matter that is the majority of the Department of Energy's budget. Um, we have also, I think it's changed from year to year, we have in general had the NNSA administrator testify as well in case there are questions that really get down into the details at that same hearing that the secretary is unable to answer at the, the level of detail that a senator is asking. So I actually think... This is this is one of the benefits of a hearing is if there is a leader and not to speak to a particular secretary of energy, but if there is a leader who is not focusing enough on a particular subject, the forcing function of an impending hearing can be a good incentive for him or her to spend some time brushing up on something that clearly the, the committee finds important. Before, you know, before we started doing this, I think it just wasn't part of it wasn't an ingrained habit, I think. I will say scheduling, I don't know what the actual total is, but it's 20 or so posture hearings in three months. Juggling, from the committee's perspective, juggling all of those calendars is a real challenge. So it can be hard to actually just get dates locked in that give all of the, the individual principals enough warning and fit in with their travel schedules, which obviously for the Secretary of Energy is a, is a big deal since he spent, he spent quite a bit of time 
traveling. But I actually think it, it's just been a function of prioritization. I think we recommended a few years ago, this is something that the full committee needs to be paying more attention to rather than deferring to the subcommittee level. And every everybody agreed. So some of it is historic. When the energy department was created, jurisdiction over the confirmation process for the Secretary of Energy rests exclusively with the Energy Committee. So the Armed Services Committee doesn't have jurisdiction over the Secretary of Energy from a confirmation perspective. That had been part of the history why it wasn't very common to have the Secretary of Energy come up and testify in the normal authorization process uh, at the SASC. And also because when you look at the budget, even though the amount of the budget from a proportional perspective at the Department of Energy is quite huge that the Armed Services Committee oversees. As Augusta said, it's over two-thirds. The Department of Energy's budget, when you put it in the context of the Department of Defense's budget, is tiny, tiny, tiny. So when you look at the the sort of the scope and the span of the Armed Services Committee's oversight responsibility, DOE is actually kind of small in absolute dollars. What what had happened every year, certainly when I was there, was the amount of sort of time and effort on the part of members and staff, though, sort of was disproportionate to this relative proportion of the dollars at energy versus the dollars at DOD. So almost all years, there's some massive controversy in, in DOE. So it's really important, and I completely agree, that it's really important to have the Secretary of Energy come up and testify at some point. Part of the problem has also been, I think, that different Secretaries of Energy have clearly had different priorities. And the 050 pieces, the 053 specifically piece of DOE, hasn't always been uh, a high priority for secretaries. Now, that has certainly changed for the last three secretaries. It was a big deal. And I hope that that will continue going forward. The other thing is, well, you know, frankly, sometimes there's a little tension between committees. And it's sometimes that that hasn't always been viewed um, as something that the Armed Services Committee should be doing. However, I will say that also has changed over time. And the Secretary has appeared on very specific things. Augusta mentioned the JCPOA. The Secretary of Energy at the time, he was Stephen Chu, testified when we were doing the New START hearing. So on a topical basis, that they have... But in terms of just coming up to, to talk, I want to I mean, I want to say maybe the last one may even have been when Secretary Pena was nominated. There was a, you know, a, a semi-courtesy hearing when Secretary Pena was nominated at the tail end of the Clinton administration. I'm kind of hard pressed to think of since then uh, when, you know, I think that may have been the last one. So Augusta's absolutely right. And it's absolutely essential that we get more participation from the secretaries of energy in this debate writ large. Let me ask you questions about the Senate Armed Services Committee, because both of you have had senior oversight positions over nuclear weapons and deterrence. Um, how do you think the role of the committee and its staff have evolved on these issues over the course of, of your careers? Madeline, we'll start with you. So I would say it has ebbed and flowed, and probably appropriately so, with how important nuclear matters have been generally. During the Cold War, obviously, it was quite important. I joined the Armed Services Committee at the very tail end of the Cold War. And so for a period of time, it was 
very high priority. This is when Senator Nunn was chairman. You had the Nunn-Luger programs that were set up, the cooperative threat reduction programs. There was a lot of debate going on about how these programs should be funded, how they should be executed, the roles of the various departments, energy, defense, and the Department of State. What was going to happen with our arsenal? What was going to get retained? What was going to go away? There were a lot of arms control discussions on the table. So for a period of time, uh, just, just like in everything else, how to unwind the Cold War was a pretty high priority for the committee. As we as we moved away from that, as we moved into the quote period of, of the of the peace dividend, and then into 9-11 and those sort of things, frankly, nuclear issues pretty much fell off the table. And there was a, you know, with a few exceptions, those exceptions being when there was an arms control treaty, uh, particularly the CTBT caused a lot of debate. Um, but other than that, there would be sort of a few debates at large. There would be some programmatic debates. There was a lot of debate about the B2 program um, in the committee at the time. But other than sort of these single issue sort of focus, there it just wasn't a priority. And then I think that's okay for the most part. But now that we're back into a situation where we have all these ongoing modernization, it really needs it really needs to get more attention writ large. And and that's where Augusta is now. And so I'll turn it over to her. Yeah, I I'd agree with that. I think in particular, I, while I understand why a lot of those decisions were made or priorities were prioritized the way that they were, especially in the post 9-11 era, I think one of the direct results of that is actually a lot of the stacked up modernization programs that we see now. So decisions made to defer individual programs and that's both at NNSA and at DOD, you know, maybe a decade ago, 15 years ago, eight years ago, has resulted in a lot of modernization requirements that can't be delayed any further. And that has led to the many people refer to as the bow wave that we are now starting to ride up, will continue to ride through the mid-2020s when BOD estimates that nuclear modernization will cost about 6.5% of the annual DOD budget. And that's a pretty significant chunk of annual spending, but as uh, many people, I think, will agree, it's not just about the dollars because the decisions that get made about nuclear force structure feed into a lot of our national security program programs writ large you know that that goes to arms control negotiations with Russia hopefully at some point future um, negotiations or at least some kind of diplomatic relationship on this subject with China North Korea and Iran it also directly affects non-nuclear force structure decisions, the decision to maintain a nuclear deterrent is what allows us to limit our ballistic missile defenses of the homeland to just counter uh, rogue state threats rather than being subjected to risk of large-scale nuclear attack from Russia or China. And that's, of course, the consistent administration policy for last several presidents. So 
I, I, I agree with Madeline. I think there, there is a, an inevitable ebb and flow, just as there is on any subject. The committee, you know, we are people, we are humans. The senators are also humans. They can't pay attention to every single issue at 100% all the time. And so it's always a question of prioritizing. It is true that these issues are starting to rise up on the priority list. The current chairman, uh, Chairman Inhofe, is very focused on nuclear modernization. And we've also, and I think this is a good thing, we've had to debate these, these issues a little more publicly in the last year or two, again, because of pretty significant policy disagreements with the leadership of the House Armed Services Committee. And so that has, um, that has pushed the debates on policy, on budget, programmatic issues, um, including some pretty technical issues down in the weeds. I think plutonium pit production is a really good example out into the public in a way that had not been the case for for quite a while. You mentioned the, that it's gotten more attention recently because of the differing perspectives from the House and the Senate. And that makes me think about nuclear modernization has generally been some uh, one of the places where there's been bipartisan agreement or at least a degree of bipartisan agreement. Is that still the case or is it is it changing? I think it is largely still the case, especially in the Senate. I think we still have consensus on the core of the nuclear modernization program. There's some disagreement. Obviously, there are small numbers of senators who disagree with a lot of the major policy issues. We have very few of that actually on on the committee itself. Uh, the committee has maintained a very strong bipartisan consensus. Every year we have a debate about one or two issues at the margin. For example, in 2018, after the release of the Nuclear Posture Review, the committee had a thorough and I think very appropriate debate and discussion on the what became the W76-2, the low-yield submarine-launched ballistic missile. But otherwise, the core of nuclear modernization, and that's the modernization of the triad, including LRSO, as well as the modernization of the NNSA enterprise that supports research design and production of warheads remains largely subject to consensus. I think there's a there is a little more maybe a few cracks in that in the house although I would note that the Hask actually I think reached something of a consensus in committee themselves this year as well. But I do think we are still for the most part operating in a in a bipartisan consensus fashion. Madeline, I don't know if you see anything differently from the from the outside. So I, I would take a tiny bit of, um, I know we talk about consensus all the time, and there is consensus to a point, but the agreement for modernization, pretty much that was formed in the context of the whole debate on the New START Treaty, which we really should remember was a very, very contentious debate. That agreement as to what modernization should sort of kind of look like, both at um, NNSA and at DOD, consisting of infrastructure and warhead life extension programs and also the modernization of the delivery system. That agreement was 
was reached by what I would call the middle, and this is across the House and the Senate. Um, but there were always people on both ends that you know either wanted more or wanted less. But there was enough in the middle to continue to carry the bulk of these programs going forward. What I see happening now is that the pushes on both sides, the people who want more, and what I say in that context is like some of the recent discussion about a return to testing, and you know, and some of the folks who want less, that push is making that middle smaller. So I think this agreement in the middle is becoming more and more fragile. And without without something that helps to build back this middle, helps to temper some of these debates, I think we're going to have problems. I think we're going to have problems going forward. And that's not to say that NNSA, for instance, isn't in need of modernization of their infrastructure. They definitely are. And the delivery systems at DOD are in definite need of modernization uh, and replacement. And so all of those programs, if we're going to have a deterrent, um, they have to go forward, but it's the con- it's the bigger context in which they go forward. So are we going to walk away from arms control? Or are we not? Are we going to extend the New START Treaty or not? Are we going to at some point ratify CTBT or push for testing? You know, those are the things that are going to, over the long term, really going to affect the ability of, of the middle to actually remain a middle. Well, I could talk to you guys about this all day, but for the purposes of this conversation, I do need to shift to your careers and uh, talk about what uh, is really the goal of this conversation uh, to foster dialogue between established nuclear scholars and next gen scholars. So I, I want to ask both of you, did you actually start out thinking that you wanted to work on the Hill and specifically on the Senate Armed Services Committee? Or was there a path that was a bit different at the beginning that actually led you uh, to the point where you are now? Augusta, we'll start with you. I will say I most definitely did not start out with this job or even really this field in mind. I've been interested in national security since I was an undergrad, but my rather circuitous route here took me first through the Peace Corps and then in grad school to nuclear issues more broadly, which I saw as an area that was really understudied, underappreciated in my generation. I also was briefly exposed to Congress as an undergrad, and my primary takeaway was that I never wanted to work here. So that, to me, I usually translate that lesson as um, you never know where an opportunity is going to going to take you. Um, but I I came here because I think these are some of the most important issues that are. Um, up for debate right now, in particular because of, um, I think, what both Madeline and I said earlier about this inflection point in uh, the modernization programs and also in the policy and political debate on nuclear issues. And I think it's a, a particularly special place to be, to be able to be providing information and advice to decision makers in a really different position than those in the executive branch, people who have a little bit more removed from the day-to-day grind of implementation, which don't get me wrong, is obviously incredibly important, but it's just a different perspective. So I most definitely did not 
envision this as a stop in my um, career. And I also, I think perhaps like Madeline, although she can correct me if I'm wrong, I, I did not come from a political background. I came from a, a policy background and have just found that um, this approach is one that can be, this position is one that can be particularly effective in influencing or implementing policy. Before Madeline jumps in, I just have to ask, was there something that happened when you were on the Hill early on that made you think you would never want to work there? Not in particular, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't one negative experience. I think I, one thing that can be frustrating about being on the Hill is that inevitably, and this is true to some extent, anywhere, but inevitably, at least some of the time, politics gets in the way of good policy. And that's something that, you know, you can try to avoid. But of course, that's true in any bureaucracy, you know, even if it's just office politics, not necessarily party politics. But I think that was early in my career that seemed so frustrating that it didn't it didn't seem worth it. Um, and I also, I think at that point, had no concept really of what committee staff did. I really only saw personal office staff. And because, especially because I was less focused on the politics side, that was less appealing to me. I knew I was interested in the policy angle, though I didn't know what kind of policy yet. So it wasn't a particularly bad experience of any kind. It just, I thought to myself, I think I would rather work for the executive branch, or I actually at the time I wanted to be a diplomat and join the Foreign Service or something something like that. Um, so like I said, it, I think there was, there was no clear path laid out in front of me. It was just a, a, a sense of, I know this is one thing I don't want to do, but of course that turned out not to be true either. <laughs> Madeline? So I started my career in this field as a lawyer in the Department of Energy's uh, litigation section and learned an awful lot about the department. Um, I hadn't, yeah, you know, I'd always been interested in politics and interested in Congress, but I didn't ever really see myself working there, although I don't think I ever dismissed it. But at that point, I was so wrapped up in everything that was going on at the department in litigation that it was, it was fascinating. It was fun. We were doing all sorts of interesting new theories and laws and ran the gamut from transportation of spent fuel. We had a ton of environmental um, litigation. I learned a lot about things nuclear. It was just a really great experience because as a lawyer, you see all aspects of the department. I mean, I had cases about electric vehicles. It, it, just, it was just learning the breadth and scope of the Department of Energy, learning about the labs and what they do, how phenomenal the department is with respect to the science and technology that it does. And that's fundamentally what it is, is a science and technology agency, it was a fascinating learning experience for me. And to meet everybody, to travel around to all these places, I was really having quite a good time. But over time, I also had started to have a bit of interaction with the Hill. And, you know, coming, coming from a family that had always had a lot of involvement in the military, uh, certainly had also had an, had an interest in things military. So when I had the opportunity to go to the Armed Services Committee, uh, it was something that I really wanted to do. And after 10 years, you kind of need a break sometimes for, for doing what you've been doing, even though you love it. And the Armed Services Committee was just a wonderful opportunity, in large part because I was going to continue to have the connection with the Department of Energy. 
to continue to oversee the Department of Energy's defense-funded activities, but also eventually pick up a wide variety of other things. I mean, at times on the committee, I've done the DOD environmental issues. I've done space. I've done nonproliferation, CTR. I mean, it's it's been, it was a fascinating perspective. The other thing I learned on armed services is the committee staff is a position that you see a lot. So in a particular area, you see all the parts and pieces of it. You see the non-pro, you see what state does, you see, you see what DOE does, you see what DOD does. And there aren't a lot of jobs where you can see all those parts and pieces. And you realize over time that where you can really make a difference is sometimes where you can connect the pieces that are related, but they don't know about each other. And it is hugely valuable, both from a policy and from a programmatic perspective, to have that big picture. So, um, but yeah, to your answer, no, I never thought I would end up there. It was totally by accident. Yeah, I completely agree with just um, one thing that Madeline said. I think it's it's not just also about looking across all of the different locations, agencies. It's also subject matter expertise, uh, not just on policy, which was what I, the background that I came from, it's certainly what I focused on in, in grad school, but you also have to become at least conversant, hopefully fluent in acquisition, budgeting. For me, I had no technical background, so I had to become comfortable with talking to, you know, the physicists and engineers at the labs, as well as, you know, speaking Air Force and Navy, so to speak. And I think that's also one really, I think, beneficial aspect of being in this job is is that ability, like Madeline said, to be able to connect all of the dots, to understand that if you want to implement a particular policy, it most likely needs to be backed up with budgeting across a few fiscal years or um, with particular kinds of acquisition decisions. And I think that's something, there aren't a lot of places where you can get that breadth of functional expertise in addition to, say, looking across you know, treaty policy to force structure to NNSA enterprise policy. One quick final question for the two of you. Are there generational differences in how nuclear policy is viewed? So I think, well, the answer has to be yes. And part of the part of the generational issues, I think, go back to how nuclear weapons were viewed in the Cold War. Nuclear weapons during the Cold War were such a large part of defense policy. They played such a big role in deterrence. There was, I mean, everybody knew about nuclear weapons in in a population. There were air raid shelters. The, you know, kids in school had exercises where they had to go under their desks and duck and cover. And you saw public service announcements and there were air raid shelters. And it was just such a a always present kind of uh, topic, you know, what was the what was the Soviet Union going to do? I mean, it was just so front and center for so long that that generation had a very different view, and I would say relationships with nuclear weapons than either the transitional piece that you know that I was a big part of on the Hill, or or even today. So I think there are huge generational differences. I think you know certainly from my perspective what we're seeing what we're seeing now which is smaller arsenals even though obviously Russia and China are growing theirs the importance of not going back to those days when 
the nuclear weapons predominate all the conversations and that there's so many of them. Um, I know there's a lot of debate about are we in a new arms race and it would, it would not be a good thing if, if we really were. So learning how to prevent some of those of mistakes is a, a challenge that I think uh, the current generation has to kind of understand what were those things that we shouldn't repeat from the Cold War? What were those things that we should have done differently in that transition period? Um, what are those things that we can do going forward to reduce the dangers of nuclear risk, to make sure that we don't get in a situation where there's an you know, intentional or inadvertent or accidental nuclear war and, and raise the profile of talking to people and really seeking um, avenues for agreements down the road, be they treaties or be they confidence building measures, be they transparency agreements, but you know, making sure that the future goal is ensuring that we don't get into the into these same um, situations of the Cold War. Augusta, I think one of the most notable generational characteristics in this field is actually the the bathtub shape. There, the the field is still largely dramatically dominated by people who are who as Madeline said came up in the cold war or at the very end of the cold war and a function of that decrease in attention to the subject in the 90s and in the post 9/11 era was there there isn't a lot of mid-career expertise in this field and I'll say when I was in grad school I was really the only person in my fairly good-sized class at Johns Hopkins SICE who was interested in this subject. I think there was maybe one other person who was focused on nonproliferation issues, and, and that was really it. And I do think that is starting to change, and whether that's a function of the prominence of the debate or whether it's a function of current politics, I don't know, I, 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 or, or whether it's a sort of more general acceptance of the return of great power competition, and therefore a greater focus on Russia and China, and therefore on nuclear weapons. I, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. But I do think I, I think that is can only be a good thing, because we need more people engaged in this field, I think, at a younger point in their careers from a wider diversity of backgrounds, both from a military, a technical, and a civilian policy perspective in and out of government. And I think, you know, one shout out actually to the CSIS project on nuclear issues, which of course was actually pretty important early in my career, the Nuclear Scholars Initiative program. Um, but we need we need more of that. We need more people more support for early career professionals in this field. And I think that's how that that's how we do what Madeline just suggested of ensuring that there are people paying enough attention that we don't repeat prior mistakes. So if I could just one thing in, in the in the shameless world of promotion and getting new people on board is exactly right. So one of the things that I've done since retirement is take on the Nuclear Security Working Group Fellows Program at George Washington University. And this program places very bright young folks in a variety of different congressional offices, Republicans, Democrats, Hill on the Hill, both both Senate and House. And 
puts them in these offices for the purpose of being resources for these offices to do things nuclear. Because the offices don't have that bandwidth, and this is a way to get them additional people, additional bandwidth, and also to broaden the the knowledge base on the on the hill of all things nuclear. So you know, this is another one of the functions. But the more the more we can get, the more people we can get, the 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 more interest we can get on the hill in these things is hugely essential. So I completely agree with Augusta on that point. Augusta and Madeline, this has been an absolutely fascinating and wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.